The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. My name's Mike Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you this week, Mark? I'm quite well, Walker. How are you? Good. How are you liking these two-week breaks in between episodes? You know, not having a podcast is almost as good as having a podcast, so I do actually enjoy the alternation. It's, it seems so much longer than two weeks. In a good way or in a bad way? In, no, not in a good way. It just means, it just means like I, I, in between the episodes, it seems like I'm almost like a month has passed. It just seems a lot longer than just one week missing. Maybe this is the secret to prolonging your life. And I've, I, it's good because then you get a break from editing, which I know is a hassle, but it's what we agreed. How would, how would you know that it's a hassle? Exa- well, I'm just, I just... You would imagine that it's a hassle, I suspect. Well, this is what we agreed to. You'd do the editing and I'd be the eye candy. This is what we agreed to. That is so. true. That is true. So, this is a podcast about board games and why they're awesome. First, we're going to talk about games we played this week, then the news, and why it does not matter. Our feature game of this week is Thunderstone Quest, and the topic is The Romance Has Ended. So, Mark, what did you play this week? Well, before we get into games we, p- we played over the past couple of weeks, there's some important follow-up from our viewers. There's one question that we got a lot of, and I'd just like to address on the air right now. We've received many, many, many questions about what we think of Snowdonia. And I'd just like to say right at the top that I don't have anything bad to say about Snowdonia. What, what are your thoughts on the game? I haven't looked into it too deeply. You, I remember we looked at the Kickstarter, and it looks like this bizarre mosh of all sorts of things. So I have no idea what it's about, and I have no idea if it's... Is it, is it an actual game, or is it sort <laughs> of like... You know, the Princess New Clothes, where it's just sort of this, you know, big joke. No, it, <laughs> I, I will say that the video, I don't I don't watch many Kickstarter videos. I only watched it because you were watching it. The Kickstarter video does look like a joke. I don't really know what they were going for, but I can definitely say that it was mildly comical. Anyway, neither of us have played Snowdonia. We can't comment. Very sorry. We have nothing to say about the game. The second bit of follow-up is a little bit more uh, serious or a little little bit more in earnest. Apparently, I have consistently, this is the second time I've done this, I consistently misattribute the design of Death Angel to the Sadler Brothers when, in fact, it was done by Corey Kaneska. And this was pointed out by a couple of our Polish viewers, just keeping it international. Thank you very, very much for keeping me honest. It was just a mistake that I've repeatedly been doing. But sure enough, I I had thought, I had read somewhere that the Saddlers had done some development work on it. But no, I just completely fabricated that out of whole cloth. Admittedly, there's a very mild similarity in the way the card activation works with respect uh, between... 
Death Angel and the Warhammer Quest adventure card game, but no, I just I just made it up. So I apologize both to Mr. Kaneska. I think it's one of his uh, better games, that is to say one of his two games worth playing. And uh, I apologize also to the Sadler Brothers, although I apologize less to the Sadler Brothers because they still owe me replacement parts. But anyway, moving right along to games that we played over the past couple weeks. I want to segue into something else quickly, though, on feedback. Just remember that we do on our board game forum, there is a thread about giving us ideas for theme and games you want covered. So if you want any coverage there, go there, leave a comment. I have been going through them. And what did you play this week? So we played Gaslands. Gaslands has been uh, a bit of a mini sensation here in Kingston. Every time we play it in public, we get at least two or three people inquiring, wanting to know when we're playing next so they can come in and join. As, I, as I've said before, if the concept of tabletop wargaming with Hot Wheels cards doesn't immediately appeal to you, then I pity you greatly. It's just an immediately appealing concept. The, co- the barrier to entry is so low. You know, four bucks at a dollar store will give you a full squad uh, and the rule, the you just need to buy the rules past that, and then cobble together some templates. It's really fun. We're having a couple of balance concerns, maybe now in early stages, but who cares? I, it's just, it's a blast, and it is by far one of the most accessible, both in terms of rules and uh, components, uh, tabletop minis games that I've ever heard of. Uh, there's a substantial contingent of locals that that now have the rules and are interested in building squads. Uh, we're probably going to be playing this for quite some time to come. I just wanted to give it another shout out. That's Gaslands, and again, it was it was uh, brought to our attention by a viewer. So thanks again for the uh, loyal Swagger community for enriching our lives. My blood is chrome. <laughs> I'm wondering if this is going to be a drawback to Gaslands because, like you said, there is no appeal to the real the real retailer in this game because right. you can go anywhere else and get your entire force for four bucks. All you need is the book, and it's people are having trouble getting the book. Retailers are having trouble getting the book in, so it's not getting support from the retailers. So I'm wondering if that's going to hold it back. Other than that, fantastic game. And I think we should cover it soon. You're right. We should probably go in-depth at some point. I went back in time and played San Juan, a card game based off of Puerto Rico, and I love it just as much as I love Puerto Rico. <laughs> You might want to give some context for people who could not see the sarcasm written all over your face. Um, well, I, I'm I'm not a fan of Puerto Rico. I feel it's always the best choice. You know, it's obvious what what you should do. This is obviously the best you know occupation. This is obviously the best commodity, and the game pretty well plays itself. But I do I did enjoy San Juan, even though you know spoiler alert for the you know the the topic of the day. I think there are just some mechanisms that I've grown out of over the years and. I'll cover it later. But San Juan, it's very interesting. Like, you're building building a uh, really neat little engine, you know, drawing cards, trying to get a good cycle going on, and I would definitely try it out. San Juan. used to play San Juan a lot back in the day, but before Race for the Galaxy got released. And Race for the Galaxy has definitely obsoleted a, a large number of games, both before its publication and after its publication. I mean, I would play San Juan over, say, Terraforming Mars. Uh, but I would definitely prefer Race for the Galaxy in any, uh, in pretty much any given context. So I got to try a game called 13 Days, The Cuban Missile Crisis. This has been described by many people very accurately, I think, as a sort of Twilight Struggle light. And with definitely with an emphasis on light, this is roughly about a 30 to 45 minute two-player card game. The, some of the abstractions I quite enjoyed in terms of how your actions on the board influence the global geopolitical situation was actually quite clever for a game of its weight. But at the end of the day, uh, I think that it doesn't really pose a serious threat to, to Twilight 
struggle in terms of obsoleting it because you don't really get a strong historical flavor from 13 days. It's the, the number of events that come out is so small that you don't really get a sense of sweep or scope that you do, even in very ahistorical games like Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle is not a very historical game, but it evokes history very well if you if you capture the two differences. So while I enjoyed it, I also felt that some of the events were a little bit wonky and some of the timing concerns can be huge. Basically, uh, in 13 days, you're only going to be playing 12 cards. And given that all you're going to be doing is playing cards, that can obviously lead to a, a high degree of variance based on what the cards are. And, you know, if you get a bad hand or if the timing doesn't work out, you can end up in situations, it appears to me, that are not particularly satisfying. But for a 30 to 45 minute card game that, you know, has a has a vaguely historic-ish uh, theme, I think it's very clever and does a number of things uh, rather neatly. So if that's the kind of thing you're looking for, it might be worth taking a look at it. But I'll, I don't think Twilight Struggle is in danger of, uh, of being replaced anytime soon. So that was 13 Days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was also amused to learn that there is indeed a yet later game called 13 Minutes, where you play even fewer cards, and of course the playtime is listed very cheekily on BoardGameGeek as 13 Minutes. I also played 13 Days, it's on my list. I didn't play against Mark, but I just, I think that's the reason I didn't like it, I think is the same reason why I have not played the uh, Twilight Struggle, it's just that that part of history doesn't interest me at all. Sure. And it just seemed awfully swingy, it was one of these things where you're placing influence on different areas by playing these cards and you're only going to play so many cards so you can just hold your big card to the end and the the other player can't even react in the end i i don't think i'll play 13 days again yeah i think i think those are valid criticisms apparently it was a two-player game blitz for me this last two weeks i played a game called exceed uh the fighting system and it's a yet another combat type you know draw off the top guess who gets the best card out first type game. Wasn't my cup of tea. More on that later. <laughs> I I actually don't like Exceed very much either. I really like Battlecon. Battlecon and Exceed are both by this by Brad Talton of Level 99 Games. They both seek to emulate one-on-one fighting games. And as a big one-on-one fighting game fan, I, I, I like it a great deal. Actually, Battlecon was the first game I ever kickstarted, the, the original War for Indians. You might like Battlecon a little bit more because there's no random draw. There's no hand of cards. There's, you know, you have the techniques of your fighter available to you and you pick the combination and then they cycle through on every three-round basis. So anything you play, you get back three rounds later. I didn't like, uh, you know, the changes that Exceed brought, I did like some of the added fluidity. I did like some of the added uh, flexibility, some of the options about the Exceed moves and all that kind of stuff. But the addition of the random draw deck did nothing for me and I really disliked that element. But you've expressed a disinterest in trying Battlecon before, but uh, maybe someday I'll force you to give it a shot. No problem. We got to play a game called Dur, the Lesser Houses. First off, a little bit of a side note. This was designed by Jim Felly. Jim Felly is probably the single most interesting designer working today. And I say this despite the fact that I've never adored any of his designs. Uh, some of his designs I haven't, re- haven't really been for me. He designed Zimbi Mojo. He designed Bemused, which is probably one of the best-themed games of the past few years. I, I quite liked Bemused. He also designed Shadows of Malice. That was pro- his first design and probably one of his better known ones. And Shadows of Malice did a number of things in, in terms of thematic uh, expression really well. If you want to look at a masterclass of avoiding some of the standard fantasy tropes in your fantasy adventure games, I would definitely point you to Shadows of Malice. And the way that it handled monster generation was really narratively beautiful. Unfortunately, the gameplay didn't grab me at all. But anyway, let's say about that, the better. Jim Felly is a wonderful guy, and his his attitude towards game design is is really, really interesting. And so I will always play everything he designs. 
And when he uh, sent me this copy of uh, Door of the Lesser Houses, I got it for free, full disclosure. I told him, uh, you know, I'll let you know if I ever discuss it on the podcast. And he says, oh, I don't expect you to discuss it on the podcast. The game's too good for that. So he's definitely, he's also got a sense of humor. Um, that's, just say, I wonder, that's much like a pizza company that's in our area. When we called them and said, do you have any deals? The reply was, we don't need to do that. Yeah, <laughs> which is much yeah. like that replies. Like, nah, it's it's just too good for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Door of the Lesser Houses is a game of unabashed take that spite and malice. It is a game where you are engaged in a political struggle to elevate yourself at the expense of your rivals, and you never do anything to advance your position. Everything you do is to harm everyone else. It's just this. It's a lovely game of hurt feelings and nastiness. I really liked it. It was, it, it's a relatively quick four to six player game. And if you, but you have to come in with the right mindset. You have to come in with a mindset that everything that's going to happen to you is, is going to be hurtful and possibly spiteful and possibly you're not going to understand the reason why. Because there's a lot of hidden motives. The scoring system is a little more opaque than a lot of games of its weight might otherwise be. And so sometimes it can be hard to understand why someone is doing these things to you. And indeed, sometimes this person is hurting you for no particular reason, just because they, you know, they cut you just to see you bleed. I, I really did enjoy it, though, despite all, all, all of this. It's uh, a lovely it's a lovely world. It's got lovely art. And it's just this marvelously straightforward game of hating everyone. Yeah, that's the only point I was going to make was the fact that you have to make sure you have the right group when you play it. And not only, like you said, you have to hurt everyone else. But I, I was when I was going through the strategy, there was a point where I was going to, like, hurt myself in order to, you know, end the game at a particular point when someone was ahead. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, sure. It was, it was really interesting. And I enjoyed it for sure. So that's Door of the Lesser Houses. It's spelled D-U-H-R. When I asked for how to pronounce the name of the game, the designer Jim Felly very helpfully uh, compared it to the pronunciation of something from Lord of the Rings, and I didn't have the heart to tell him that he was barking up the wrong tree because uh, that doesn't do anything for me. I just I might as well compare it to ancient Greek. I just do not know the pronunciation of anything in that benighted universe. But anyhow, I, I do recommend giving it a shot or Bemused. Bemused and Doer are very similar in terms of mechanics. Dura is a slightly is slightly more subtle in some of the the effects and a little bit more sophisticated in terms of the scoring. Bemused, on the other hand, definitely wins in terms of theme. Dura is a relatively straightforward political struggle, whereas Bemused is a game of spirits trying to drive the other artists that the other spirits spirits are influencing insane. You know, driving driving a dancer to suicide is a, is a little bit different from uh, you know insinuating that your rival may have had carnal relations with a goat. Anyway, whichever one you'd prefer. All right, the last one on my list is Rum and Bones by Simon. And I'm just enjoying it more and more that I play it. It's a uh, a game that sort of tries to emulate uh, League of Legends, where you have these, you know, uh, waves of nobodies, you know, slowly advancing against your enemy, while you have these champions that are jumping all over the place. And I think it's a game that just gets better the more you play it because its only drawback in my opinion is because it doesn't outstay its welcome it's got all these crazy abilities that you know you think are don't balance the game but the game doesn't last so long so the only pullback is the the giant setup time and trying to remember the rules again which will just be negated by playing it more than you know you have both people setting up the same time boom it's done you're playing you're done and it was a great experience so rum and bones enjoying it more and more 
I was able to play another MOBA-inspired game called Guards of Atlantis. It's been far too long since I played it. It was on my, uh, much like Rum and Bones, it was on my uh, top ten of last year. I'm a big fan of MOBA-inspired games. Guards of Atlantis is an entirely different approach to it. I've talked a lot about it elsewhere, but it's a really, really, really good multiplayer design. It scales beautifully from four to about 11 players, if you want to stretch it that far. And it was uh, a, a great back-and-forth knockdown drag-out affair where, you know, teammates had to come to each other's aid and one player had to shoulder the, the burden of another, or rather not to put too fine a point on it. My teammate had to hoist me up on his giant gentle shoulders as I sucked it up real, real bad for a very long period of the game. But then a lucky kill got us back in, into contention and we were able to pull it out. So it had a, a, a great element of drama there. Guards of Atlantis is a superb MOBA-style game, but a, of an entirely different tenor to Rum and Bones, even though I enjoy both of them a great deal. Another game I got to try for the first time this past couple weeks is a game called Scoville. This is by Ed Marriott and put up by Tasty Minstrel in uh, 2014. I initially avoided Scoville because I'm, I don't know why, but I'm annoyed by the games uh, that are pitched at kind of food enthusiasts. All the coffee, beer, and wine-based games, I have no interest in any of them, aggressively. Chocolate. Yeah, yeah, I just, I don't know why, I couldn't tell you, because most of the time I'm, I'm indifferent to lots of themes that I would otherwise not like, and I, I complain endlessly about all the fantasy derivatives, but I'll play them all the time, but anyway... Uh, but it was it was put in front of me, and uh, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. I didn't enjoy it a whole heck of a lot, primarily because there are th three things going on in Scoville that I'm not a huge fan of. One of them is blind bid auctions where everyone pays. Another is spatial puzzles of how to tr basically trace routes. That's just a personal preference. And it's also the third thing it's got is this weird, in, in Scoville there's this weird chart of what combines with what. You know, a yellow purple, a yellow pepper and a red pepper combine and form this other pepper. And a brown pepper combines with almost nothing to create almost nothing. And then all these other things. I, some people love internalizing stuff like that. I just uh, did not find that section fun or amusing. So it was, it was very clean in a lot of ways other than this whole combination business. And the way the map grows organically, no pun intended, is very cool. But Scoville didn't really do it for me. If you like combining things to make new things and, and, and all that kind of stuff, it's kind of a, a subtle variation of the, you know, taking cubes to turn them into other cubes with a sort of a spatial element on top of it. So it didn't really do much for me, but I uh, appreciated being able to try it. All right. And now on to the news and why it really does not matter. First up for me, I have Eclipse 2nd Edition, now on Kickstarter. If you're a fan of Eclipse, this new edition seems extra shiny and and fresh. And in case you didn't know, it is now, it's like a, a Twilight Imperium Euro edition. In case people who don't know what Eclipse is, it's like a sprawling, engine-building, Euro Space 4X game. I'm a little bit frustrated that the expansion races are not included in any way, shape, or form in any of the levels available for the Kickstarter. To be frank, I'm not entirely sure why, but, you know, ultimately I'm willing to fork out a fair amount of money to get a newer, improved version of something I already have. But in many ways, to me, this seems like spending a lot of money to get a downgrade of something I already have. Because it's got all the promos and everything, but to me, one of the, the, the big appeals to a game like Eclipse is in the variety of the races. And so here... I would be giving them for the full pledge 150 bucks, and then I would have fewer races to play with. Well, that off, just seems like a step back. To me. Off the cuff, I'm just going to say because if you follow the trend of Kickstarters now, in a year when it releases, it'll get another boost of 
popularity, at which time their second Kickstarter will start with the expansion races and a chance to get back in on the original pledge. Good point. Right? And they're in for the money, and that is seems to be the, you know, the the way that they're doing it. No, and it's not... Look, I'm not accusing them of being unduly mercenary, right? No, no, I'm not, and I'm not trying you to keep, be... You keep saying, you know, they're in for the money as though it's some bad no, thing. No, but I don't it's not... I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Okay. I'm just saying it, it's just reality. Like, sure. these guys aren't, you know... I'm not saying there's not companies out there that are doing it out of the kindness of their heart or because it's their lifelong thing, but 99% people want, you know, to make a viable business so they can put out more games sometimes or they just want to make a profit. And, and I have no problem with this whole template that's going on, right? Because I've I've utilized it many times where I'm not sure if a game is going to be good or people are going to like it. And when the second Kickstarter comes out, then I can re-pledge and get the whole thing plus the expansion. I, I really like this the thing this this template, so... I've been following some of the Sturm und Drang about the second edition of Eclipse on Kickstarter. You know, a lot of some of the complaints seem weird. Some of them seem overblown. Some of them seem entirely reasonable. Like this whole, I, I remember seeing this product, these game trays with a Z when they first came. Sorry, with a, for our American, our, our delicate American listeners, that's with a Z. We'll provide a, a, a helpful decoding ring for all our strange vowels and consonants later on. We also spell armor and valor with a U. Anyway. Color. Color as well, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly we have armor and valor. We're not so much with the color. We're kind of pasty. So when the game trays came out, you know, these weird circular things, I thought, eh, I I figured I didn't need them. And now the strange thing is, you know, there have been a lot of years where a lot of people have put out really impressive stuff for 3D printers on Thingverse and a variety of other platforms. And you know what? Just a simple survey showed, you know, about nine out of ten of them seemed to better facilitate setup and be more functional than the one they're going with. I think if a publisher just reaches out to a fan and says, hey, can we use your design? You know, we'll give you credit in the rule book and maybe even a free copy of the game, which would cost them all of postage. Then they'll probably say yes. And you just certainly don't lose anything if they say no. But they decided to go with the game trays, which don't really do anything for me. And I don't know how much that factors into the cost. Maybe nothing, maybe a whole heck of a lot. Anyway, suffice to say, unless and until the second edition of Eclipse is able to fully (coughs) eclipse my current version and have all the same content, Walker's shaking his head, it's deserved. It's deserved, I'm sorry. Then I'm going to be holding off on this one. On the topic of more Kickstarter Sturm und Drang, there was a project called Overturn, which has been yanked. So this was a project that raised almost half a million bucks. Now, granted, they were, they were Canadian dollars. And people started noticing a couple of problems. So, so some of it was the standard problem of Kickstarter uh, minis games. You know, the renders looked far better than the prototype components that they were using. And there weren't any pictures of production copies. You know, that's par for the course. You know, there's a dozen, a dozen or more Kickstarters on at any given moment where that's true. But then when the initial draft rulebook was posted, people started noticing that it was very similar to the Massive Darkness rulebook. And I don't just mean in terms of copying paragraphs, although they did that too. The layout was a copy. The, you know, the, the overall layout of the rulebooks were almost identical. Some of the class descriptions were almost identical. It was bizarre. Like, just minor details of the Massive Darkness rulebook that you wouldn't think any game would seek or, or naturally copy. Because I'm very sympathetic. Like, I've written a couple of rulebooks in the past. I've rewritten a couple of rulebooks in the past as hobby endeavors. And, you know, some of it is not quite boilerplate, but just the kind of thing that you're going to repeat over and over. 
stuff about targeting, stuff about moving. You can move through friends but not enemies, and blah 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 blah. All that stuff. Like you've you've read similar things a billion times before. So I'm sympathetic if you do a draft version where you copy a whole bunch of stuff. But when it's gameplay unique elements and when you copy the layout and everything looks so similar, that's dodgy. Also, even more dodgy, their logo, the logo of their company for for Overturn, which ripped off the Firefox logo. There was a, a, a section of the Firefox logo just ripped out and superimposed on their the, their game company logo. Anyway, on top of that, there was some question about wh- whether these people were actually in Canada. They were uh, apparently uh, three Pakistani nationals who would post at times that made sense if they were in Pakistan, but not if they were living in Canada. whole bunch of stuff. So... The CEO of Cool Mini or Not submitted to Kickstarter and to this, uh, this quote-unquote Gabe company a digital copyright millennium infringement notice. And that, in conjunction with a whole bunch of fan backlash and a whole bunch of pledges being pulled, have prompted Kickstarter to sus- cease funding of the project, which is good because otherwise it, it, it had lost a lot of money since its height. But it was still still had about $150,000 worth of pledges. And it really didn't look like anything was going to come out the other end of this. Who knows? Maybe these guys are actually game designers. Maybe they're in Montreal as we speak. Who's to say? But you can. one thing we've, we've learned is you can always relaunch a Kickstarter. And there's always money to be had there. You know, so go do your due diligence and maybe it'll, it'll turn out all right. But it certainly looked awfully dodgy. And this, I, I'm glad because this sets a good precedent that Kickstarter will be responsive to people protect, trying to protect their intellectual property, if nothing else. Yeah, it's nice that, you know, it's a good story on Kickstarter for a change when something bad happens. I, th- I think so, yes. All right, my next is Escape Plan on Kickstarter as well by Eagle Games. It's by, by Vital Lasarda. He also does uh, Lisboa and The Gallerist, and a game that I really enjoy, Kanban. That being said, I don't own any of these games, <laughs> but Escape Plan looks very interesting. I really like the art layout and its concept, and it's going to be something I'm going to be following, and I'm hoping that it's going to turn out good at the other end. A game I'm following, which is not on Kickstarter, is Blue Lagoon. This is another Knizia tile-laying game. I have yet to dislike a Knizia tile-laying game. And very much as we've discussed with his upcoming release of Yellow and Yangtze, he seems to be uh, getting back into the kind of stuff that I at least personally would be interested in. A number of people have compared Blue Lagoon, usually unfavorably, but they've often compared it to Through the Desert, which I think is one of the all-time classics of Euro design. And even if something is similar to but not as good as Through the Desert, that still sounds like something worth playing. Very much like if you know Yellow and Yangtze ends up being similar to but not as good as Tigris and Euphrates, there's a lot of room between Tigris and Euphrates and still really, really excellent. So I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. All right. Saw something today. Yet another nostalgia kickback. And it's been a while since a game has come out that it's going to be just an insta-buy for me. It is called Wacky Races. It's coming out by Simon Games. So they're teaming up with Warner Brothers and Hanna-Barbera to bring out this crazy... For those who remember, it was a fantastic cartoon. Of- okay, okay, sorry. Could could you... Here's the thing. I've heard of Wacky Racers. Is it Wacky Racers? Wacky Racers. Okay, I've heard of Wacky Racers. Wacky before. Races. Sorry, wacky, wacky Races. Okay. I've heard of Wacky Races before, outside of the context of, of this project. What is it? it? It was just a cartoon. It was where, a cartoon. Where it had all these... It, you ever watch Cannonball Run? No. You've never seen Cannonball Run? I've never seen Cannonball Run. Infidel. Um... It's all these crazy cars and villains and heroes and they pull characters from all the different old Hanna-Barberas and they get in these cars and they do these races and they have all these crazy hijinks and weird mechanisms and crashes and 
it's it's just a silly fun thing and I know this game is going to be amazing. Okay, so so correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like it was a show with Hanna-Barbera All-Stars a la Mario Kart kind yes, of very much so. Okay, okay. And they also did an Olympic one that was also What? Yes, I forget. uh, This was another show? Yes, it was another show, much like this, but... Olympics with hijinks? Yeah, Olympics with hijinks with all the Hanna-Barbera characters, you know, pulled in, and I I wish I remember the name for it, but Did they give them nationalities? Like, did they say that... Did did they say where the cartoon characters were from, or... that I can't remember, no. Oh, wow. You're blowing my mind. If you ever watched it, your mind would be blown. Okay. For its time, it was amazing. Fond memories. Final bit of news. There was we talked about this before. It looked like the owners of Asmodee were shopping it around so that it could be sold, and sure enough, it looks like it is going to be sold. Uh, so Eurasio, which was the uh, private equity firm that owned Asmodee, is now in talks with Pi Partners, which is another private equity firm also located in Paris, to sell them Asmodee and all the associated assets. It is uncertain whether this will have any impact on us at all especially since the business operating profile of Pi Partners, as much as as, rep- as reporting seems to indicate, their profile seems to be roughly the same. They like to acquire assets that then acquire a bunch of other assets. You know, in other words, steady as she goes, Asmodee, keep gobbling up everybody else. So it, this isn't a situation where they're, you know, are likely to strip it and sell it for parts, especially since it's not a manufacturing company, so it's not like there are a whole bunch of parts to strip. So more news to follow, uh, but... <laughs> Insofar as our tiny little hobby is starting to attract the attention of people with actual money instead of pretend hobbyist money, there are developments afoot. All right, and that is the news and why it does not matter. On to our feature game of the week, which is Thunderstone Quest by AG. Okay, so clearly in the future, Walker can't be trusted <laughs> to talk about cartoons because it gets him in a weird mood. All right, so let's set the stage here. So Dominion was released in 2008, and Thunderstone, the original Thunderstone, this is Thunderstone Simpliciter, or from now on just Thunderstone, was released in 2009. And this is one of the many immediate derivatives of Dominion. And there were lots in that era. Many of them have been forgotten justifiably. Thunderstone, on the other hand, seemed to kick around. It got four expansions, in addition to the base set, and then uh, three years later, in 2012, Thunderstone Advance came out. And contrary to what it is called, Thunderstone Advance and Normal Thunderstone were, number one, fully compatible with each other, and number two, almost entirely the same game. The salient differences were that the keywords were cleared up and the graphic design and layout was a little bit better and a little bit more consistent. And it was mostly about improving the balance of the sets rather than necessarily going back to the drawing board. And then Thunderstone Advance had its four-ish expansions over the years, and then it kind of died a, a, a death of benign neglect a few years after that. And then AEG decided to kickstart the what is effectively the third version of Thunderstone, namely Thunderstone Quest, and it has finally come out, it finally came out a few months ago, and now it's back on Kickstarter again, which is one of the reasons why we're talking about it now, so we can help guide you, the, the masses that depend on our benighted opinions, uh, it's being kickstarted right now for uh, another set of expansions. Quest currently has already about four or five, depending on how you want to slice expansion in this edition. More on that later. But they're going to put out a couple more, including the all-important obligatory co-op slash solo variant, which every game in the universe has to have. It's actually weird that Thunderstone Quest didn't launch with one, because as of uh, very early on in the Thunderstone arc, 
and definitely baked into the design of Thunderstone Advance, there was a solo version that was always part of the design. So it's weird that in Thunderstone Quest, it didn't have the same thing. And in point of fact, you couldn't just backport the rules for, for Thunderstone Advance due to the changes uh, that, that have been introduced in Quest. So that's sort of the lineage of, of this, na- by now, I guess, somewhat long-running game. They've gone back to the well for the third time. Walker, why don't you tell us what we do in Thunderstone Quest? In Thunderstone Quest, when it is your turn, you have three choices. One, is it the end of the game? No. (laughs) (laughs) Then, do you have enough damage to kill a monster? No, then you're killing a rat. Or three, you're doing a town action. And if it is the end of the game, then you're fighting the boss, quotation marks, question marks, who is a victory point pinata. Hit him for as much as you can and win the prize. That is Thunderstone Quest. No, it's not. I have a second one. I have a second one. Sorry, I did. I was. I have two in case because I knew you didn't like this one. Okay. In Thunderstone Quest, while you're cycling your cards and playing an adventure Dominion game, you're wondering why am I not playing Shadow Rift instead and actually having fun. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about something right off the bat, and that is that Thunderstone Quest is basically, it, it, it feels like a 10-year-old design in a lot of ways. I'm not going to minimize the changes that Quest has introduced to the formula, and we'll talk a little bit about those later. Well, rather, I'll talk about it, because you didn't play the previous versions, I don't think. I, well, I played it once, and that's... Okay. Oh, well, I'll talk about it now. Uh, a friend of mine, we pulled it off the shelf. It was part of the, the, the game's library, the store's library, and we tried it, and it got me excited again, because I knew Shadow Rift was doing a second edition, and I was really looking forward to this quest. I sort of felt bad that it didn't back it because I thought it was going to be a updated version and I didn't mind uh, Thunderstone Advance and I thought if they uh, introduced new rules and updated a bit that it would be a great game. So it has been updated. There are things that Quest does differently from its forebears and it is far more different from both Thunderstone and Thunderstone Advance than Advance was to basic Thunderstone. But in many ways... It is a throwback to how deck builders were designed about 10 years ago. And to, to, to a certain extent, so is Shadow Rift. Because basically, to my mind, there are, if you want to make, it, make a fundamental distinction between two different kinds of pure-ish deck builders. So let's set aside for right off the top, and this is what I mean by pure-ish. I'm not talking about games like Mage Knight. I'm not even, ta- I'm not even really talking about games like Core Worlds. I'm talking about the games that basically are Dominion and its immediate derivatives. There's two ways you can go about it. Either there's the fixed market, where you set up piles of cards and everyone buys from them, or you can have the rotating market, where there's just this flow of cards, usually five or six, and you buy from them. This was first introduced, I think, most saliently in Ascension. So there's the Ascension model, and then there's the Dominion model. And one of the things that Thunderstone did was that it was kind of a sort of hybridization of the two in some ways, because everything you buy was in these fixed decks, but the way you get points is by mostly is by going and killing things, which is indeed is from this queue from a deck. It used to be one deck, now it's three. But And for what it's worth, that's exactly how Shadow Rift works. You have these static town decks, and then you know the monsters come out. The salient difference between a game like Shadow Rift and a game like Thunderstone is is that Shadow Rift feels more like its own beast because you don't buy that many cards. Mostly it's about coordinating with everyone else and dealing with these these abilities. You know, very often at the end of a game of, of 
Shadow Rift, you might have purchased, say, half a dozen cards total in your deck, which is unheard of in any other deck builder. Even in other co-op deck builders, like uh, Xenoshift, for example, where you buy lots and lots and lots of cards and your deck is radically different. It's mostly about exploiting combos for efficiency, you know, very much like a game of Dominion is. You know, you try to identify the ways that cards interact with each other for maximum efficiency, and you exert that as best you can to do as much with your turn as you possibly can. It's much like Dominion, too, where it's completely themeless, where you are buying all these different adventurers, so and there's no reason why you buy particular ones except for, you know, you know, maybe so there's some abilities out on the board that you need a little bit of diverse things, but it, it's not really, you know, you have no idea when they're going to come up or anything else. And you can just, you know, buy a certain kind and the weapons and the abilities, they don't really mean much. They, there's even gold on, on the items, like on the axes and swords, there's gold. So you're like buying items, weapons to make you purchase things easier so like are you threatening the shopkeepers with the weapons that's how i always thought of it you show up with you you show up and you ask the shopkeeper how much something is and he says it's five bucks and then you pull out you know three rapiers a dagger and a lantern you say here are my coupons how much is it now and he says oh uh, yeah you can have it and then there's spells that you can buy that you're actually casting yourself so you're sort of in the background doing stuff. So are you some sort of like adventurer slave trader? You're sort of like <laughs> buying up these adventurers and forcing them into a dungeon for some reason and making them... It It didn't appeal to me anyway. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the theme. The theme, I characterize the theme of Thunderstone very much the same way that a, that a lot of games are, and that is bad D&D. You know, the old school Dungeons and Dragons model where basically what you're doing is you're equipping a group of murderers to go in and wipe out some community of of cave drillers and then steal all their stuff. And lots of games are bad D&D. You know, Descent is bad D&D. Almost every dungeon crawl is bad D&D. There are games that I like that are basically bad D&D. I prefer it when games poke fun at the bad D&D theme, like, you know, Assault on Doomrock, which I always mention in terms of subverting these things. Shadows of Malice also subverts these kinds of expectations, but in a slightly different way. So I, I, I will grant you that it is relatively themeless, but I'd certainly say that, it, that it's better themed than, say, Dominion. Because in Dominion, you know, you're notionally playing a village, and what that constitutes, I think, theoretically, is that you have a village in your lands, and that represents... No, no, I was comparing it to Dominion yeah. of having no theme. No, but here at least, you know, the, the way that you're equipping weapons to your adventurers, I think is at least a, a smidge better in terms of making you understand what's going on and helping you conceptualize the rules and evoking some kind of theme. So there's that at least. True, there is. I will grant you that the rest of the stuff makes no sense. You know, the, the, the notion that you're some sort of champion that, as you say, is an adventurer slave driver that stands in the back and occasionally hurls a spell somewhere. Yeah, there, there, there are situations, and this has been true since the first version of, of Thunderstone, where if you have a handful of spells, you can just basically chuck them. The, 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 I, the image, I suppose, is of you, the character, standing at the entrance of the dungeon and just hurling fireballs down the corridor and then stopping when you when the, the screams stop, I suppose. <laughs> Well, I'm not. I don't have everything bad. I do have some good points here. Like the, there's the, the light system. It was in Thunderstone Advanced. It is in this game as well. And I find it very interesting how they use it. How some items, you know, like holy items, like the staff of light or your lantern, all of these things produce light, and you can get lantern tokens. And to get deeper into the dungeon, you need supplies to get there. And I thought that part was interesting back then, and I still think it's interesting now. Well, that's one of the ways in which I really think that the Thunderstone system is pretty good. 
because the Thunderstone at its core, one of the key differences, I think, overall in terms of the play experience between it and Dominion and a lot of other deck builders is that it has multiple currencies that interact with each other. So you've got money, and as you mentioned, sometimes the things that produce money don't make a heck of a lot of sense. And you've got combat strength, and then you've got the proficiency of your fighters, and you've got light, and all of these things interact with each other in subtle ways. And some of them let you do some things and not others, and sometimes a deficiency in one can be overcome with some other items, and sometimes they can't. And managing those currencies and letting what's in your hand inform your range of options is, I think, when the game is actually doing its best. Now, your, your initial mockery of you know, looking at your hand and your hand tells you whether you can go kill a monster, I would actually disagree with. Because sometimes, especially in the mid-game, it is the case that you can absolutely go kill a low-level monster more or less at will. Whether, it, not even just a rat, but you have to know when to stop. You, you have to know when to take a breather and go back to town to level up your guys. You have to know when it's not worth the wounds that you're going to take by going and killing something. You have to know when to take the rest. Now, this isn't necessarily the deepest decision-making in the world. But then again, a lot of deck builders suffer from this, right? The joke about Dominion is you look at the 10-card setup, you make your one decision about what kind of cards you want to buy, and then the rest of the game plays itself. And I don't think that's necessarily accurate 100%, but it, it gets at a certain truth. Thunderstone has a bit of that. You look at the adventurers available, you look at the weapons and, and tools available, you decide which ones you're going to buy, and then, you know, your hands play itself. Except you need to know when to, when to go to town and when to go to the dungeon. And I don't think it's quite as trivial as you make it out to be. I, I have the only the, the only rebuttal I have to that is the fact that if you take if you can kill a monster and you don't you go to town then it puts you back a turn and it really is a game of racing you're racing to get the adventurers because once all the adventures are gone then you can't get them anymore if you upgrade adventure then yours is turned down and you get the new one and there's a limited number of level three so you're racing your opponents to get those adventures you're racing to get more experience, more victory points before they do. And if you take a turn when you're not, you know, waste a turn in the village when you're not supposed to, it might put you behind. Well, yeah, if you waste it, obviously. But, you know, just thinking back of, of one game where I got beaten very handily, it's precisely because I was going and killing a monster every turn just because I could, rather than stopping taking taking stock of the situation and pausing to level up my guys. Because that's yet another currency you have in Thunderstone the experience points with which you level up your characters. And if you don't get to those level three characters, then you're not going to get very far. You, you can still take your turns. You're not going to be blocked or anything. But the person who's sitting on a bunch of level three adventures is going to be murdering whatever they want. They're going to be murdering the high value monsters where you're going to be stuck with the JV team. And so that's another element of tempo and about how to man manage the currency that does actually introduce a level of decision-making that I think is pretty decent. Agreed. You talked about... Uh tokens and currency. So I'm going to talk about the next point is uh, more components than they needed, I feel. They have these bread tokens, they have lantern tokens, they have uh, uh, tokens, potion tokens, and they have experience point tokens. And I didn't think of the experience point tokens at first, but I think that's could be used as well. I think these could all be combined into one token and they could all do the same ability. The argument was made, well, in the marketplace, they have different values you know, to spend. So, you know, some of them cost more than others, but did you ever, I've never seen anyone actually buy a token in the village. So I think the prices are arbitrary and I think there was just more components than needed. You could have just used all one component for all of this and just had it do the same thing. Quite possibly. I don't think, I, I share your view that it's possible they could have been simplified. I dispute your observation that no one buys them. I buy them all the time. 
I, but I, I do share that in terms of setup and managing everything, there is a fair bit to do, but it's mostly in the cards. In any given game, you're going to have four stacks of adventures that need to be sorted in a certain a certain way. You're going to have eight stacks of items. You're going to have three stacks of monsters. You need to shuffle things into the monster decks, set them out in a certain way, set up the tiles, etc., etc. So there's a fair amount of upkeep. But then again, that is also true of some of our other favorite deck builders. Deck builders are just a finicky genre where you tend to have lots of different piles of stuff. Like... Shadow Rift is a bit of a nightmare in terms of managing all the different decks. It's one of the worst things about the game. It really is. The same is true of Xenoshift. The same is true of pretty much any deck builder. The only exceptions are the really, really, really stripped down ones. Your Star Realms, your Shards of Infinity, where it's just, here's your starting deck, here's the central deck, that's it, let's go. And that's one of the key advantages to, to games like that. And I think that is one of the reasons why the modern design push is indeed towards those more streamlined elements. That's a good point I have on here as well, is that there are a lot of cards in Thunderstone. So every time you play, it's going to be a different experience. Uh, some of the abilities, like the end, the, your heroes can level up three times. So you start off with your zero level guys that are starting your deck, then you go to one, two, and three, and the third level adventurers, which there are tons of different ones, there's fighter, rogue, cleric, uh, wizard and in the box there's several different versions of each one and the final abilities of your kitted out adventures are really neat and interesting and and fun to get to so and every game is going to be different so variable gameplay it's true every game feels different finding those different combos in any given game setup there are going to be lots of different combos to explore sometimes you'll write off a character or an item as useless until you see your opponent pull off something really interesting with them and then you're like oh that's how they're supposed to work that's kind of cool meanwhile you're pulling off your own impressive combos in a very very different way so it's not really a sandbox by any stretch of the imagination but it's not nearly as narrow or limited as you might expect and discovering those things and playing with the different kinds of characters is one of the reasons why I enjoy Thunderstone. I do enjoy seeing the way the different characters work and looking at the different level 3 versions and kitting out my own little combos. I do agree with you that it is a very, very clunky dated design in a lot of ways. And personally, I've been, as playing, as while, while I've been playing it and later on when reflecting on it, I've been trying to unpack how much of my enthusiasm for Thunderstone Quest is simple nostalgia because I've been playing this game for 10 years and how much of it is that I genuinely enjoy it. And mostly where I've ended up now, and we'll, we'll talk, I have, I have a few more negatives to talk about as well as a few more positives, but where I've ended up for the moment is, well, clearly nostalgia factors into it, but by the same token, I've been playing it for 10 years, so that has to say something, right? I don't, I wouldn't have been playing it for 10 years out of simple nostalgia. I would have gotten sick to death of it by now. Part of it is that they keep introducing new sets, whether it's because they keep rebooting the franchise or, or, or what have you. But I really do like, you know, the bad D&D version of kidding out somebody and having a whole bunch of combat value and going and beating the living crap out of something. So I, I don't, it, you know, it's one of those, I wouldn't necessarily put it as a guilty pleasure, but it's certainly a game that I enjoy more than I respect. All right, so let's finish up our good points Let's see, what do I have left on my good points? Putting it away is the last point that I have on my good points. What do you have left on your good points? <laughs> I've said my piece. I like the combos. I like seeing the variety. I like seeing the different heroes do their job. I do like the fact that in terms of the bad D&D version, it is, it, you know, it is, it is a relatively straightforward way of going and just murdering a whole bunch of, a bunch of guys. And some of the card effects are neat, like the card design of some of the weapons and some of the items are relatively clever. So despite the fact that it's it's still mired in a lot of antiquated game design concepts, or at least antiquated in, in, in a 10-year time frame, some of the card effects are, are, are pretty interesting. 
All right, on that point, I have a good slash bad point. Let's go to the bad points. Is the There's no way to cull your deck, except for some interesting mechanisms that are in the game. So every time you, like we already talked about, every time you upgrade your, your heroes, you're going to get rid of the old one and take in the new one. And some of the items, like uh, I guess it's only the daggers, your starting daggers, the weapons that you start with, uh, when you buy new items, you have the option of ditching the old ones. But that would be pretty well the only way you can get rid of cards that you don't want in your deck anymore. Yeah, so basically what you've done is you've said that of the 12 cards you start with, eight of them have built-in ways to self-destruct. No, but of the ones you start with. That sounds sounds pretty decent to me. Well, sometimes you get other cards that you just want to thin out of your deck, but once you take them in, like say you've you've purchased things that you thought would be helpful and later on turn out not to be, and now they're in your deck. Fair enough. I do really like that. That is one of the things that Quest has done differently from Advance and Thunderstone. Thunderstone Quest has built in a whole bunch of other ways to call your deck. That whole thing about you can you can burn a dagger, which is a starting weapon. You can burn it out of the game automatically after you buy something. That's a that's a neat little self-destruct element if you don't want the dagger. I've kept daggers because they're useful in a variety of situations, and you know the builds that I was building still wanted to have them around. The only cards that you can't get rid of automatically are, number one, your lanterns, which provide you with currency and provide you with light. And so in a, in a game mix where there's not a lot of other easy access to light, having lanterns in a, a late-level deck is not going to be a serious handicap. The other card you can't get rid of are the so-called Thunderstone Shards, which in addition to other minor effects, let you draw cards when you're wounded. So they're a bit of a, a, a way to make sure that if you're heavily wounded and thus your hand size is reduced, you're not going to be boned too badly. But you're right. Other than that, there's no like chapel card where you can bury a whole bunch of other cards. There are very few other cards that let you bury anything. Some of the monsters destroy things for you, but usually that's bad. So sometimes it's a bit of a, a consolation if the thing you want you have to destroy is is something you didn't like. And those features, the, the automatic built-in way to destroy daggers, the, uh, the fact that you can actually take a double turn in early stages of the game, go and buy something in the village, and then go kill a rat to level up one of your starting heroes, that did not exist in previous iterations of Thunderstone. And that's actually one of the, 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 the cleverest bits of Quest. You ramp up much more quickly in Thunderstone Quest than you do in the previous versions of Thunderstone. Yeah, I have to agree. That's a great way to you know, get the game going and advance it to a point much quicker and and it uh it flows very nice that way so i only have one more bad point believe it or not and it is that it it does not stay outstay its welcome it it gets done fairly quickly but still at the end i don't feel like there was much done you know what i mean you're you're purchasing through these decks you're you know fighting these monsters and then and the boss the boss at the end i think was is what is the most it's just like this loop pinata. What you do is you you draw a whole bunch of cards and you lay them all out and you say, okay, I do this much damage and you get that many victory points and there's no like real build up. It's not as though you feel you have accomplished anything. There's no this big dramatic moment where you've killed this boss. So I think it's just at the end it just falls short. It's fair. End. It's balanced. It's good mechanically and it is desperately unsatisfying. I agree with you. I when I when I first internalized how it worked, I'm like, oh, that's that's really fair. It really helps even out the turn structure, and it just basically means that at the end of the game, everyone generates the biggest combat total they can, and it doesn't feel very good. You just sit around, you do the calculations. It emphasizes uh, some of the elements that are the least satisfying about the game, namely the mathematical calculations of relatively large combat numbers with a massive hand. And you're right, it's a loot pinata. It's it just discord just stands around waiting to get it whacked in the face, and then it disgorges a whole bunch of points. 
really well done mechanically, very unsatisfying in terms of play experience. I've got a couple other negatives. One of them is, and this is very, again, this is very common in lots of other deck builders, there's next to no player interaction. Turns are a little more involved than I'd like in a game with no player interaction because there's about, okay, I put this thing on this guy and that triggers this effect and this other guy is going to use this other thing and then I have to calculate these numbers and do the addition in my head. And I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the turns in Dominion where it's village, village, draw, draw, shuffle, shuffle, whatever. But there are a lot of turns in Thunderstone which aren't taking too long because the player's taking too long, but it's just not particularly enjoyable to sit around and watch them do it. The biggest element of player interaction that exists in Thunderstone, and this has been true in all versions of Thunderstone, is actually terrible player interaction because it's one thing to have a, a stack exhaust of cards. Okay, I buy the last whatever. You you don't get any more Warhammers. I bought the last Warhammer. That's fine. I you know I don't find it especially satisfying as player interaction. But the way hero upgrades work, I'm going to try to explain this so that if you haven't played the game, it, it, you, you understand. So you, you've got the level 1 version, the level 2 version, the level 3 version, all of the same hero. Whatever flavor of cleric you happen to have in this particular mix, of which there are many, many different kinds of cleric. If all the level 2 versions are gone because people have either purchased them in some contexts or because they just happen to have leveled them all up and they have a whole bunch of level 2 clerics, and they're just all gone, there are no more level 2 clerics left, your level 1 cleric will never ever level up at all, period. There's nothing you can do with that level level 1 cleric to level them up. And a level 1 cleric near the end of the game is bad. Almost always. And that's really awful. Even if you have enough points, enough experience points to level them up straight to level 3, or if you're drowning enough money that you could theoretically buy the level 3 version, no, you're not allowed. You're just stuck. It's this weird, arbitrary roadblock. And it is really bizarre and it comes up almost every game where some stack runs out and leads to weird upgrade roadblocks i have one other quick point to make is the keys the thing that ends the game like mark talked about earlier there are three different monster decks which is a graduated thing which is a huge uh, advantage over the previous version so they get increasingly harder you're not hit with something hard right off the beginning you can you have to have more light to go into the harder rooms to kill the 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 more deadly things but you're all, you always have the option at least until the decks runs run out of killing a lower level monster or spending the resources to go to a higher level monster so the they have these key cards which are seeded throughout these monster decks and whoever whoever kills a monster and flips up a card to replace it if it's a key they get it and it's this sort of just random thing where it's like, oh, I get the advantage, I get the extra victory points, and it just happens to be me that turned over the card. It's a very minor thing, but after you talked about flipping up the cards, I just had to mention it. Sure, fine. <laughs> sure, fine. I'd just like to summarize by talking about how Thunderstone Quest in particular is sort of, to me, the epitome of Kickstarter. Because in the beginning, at the beginning of the Thunderstone product line, there was a base game that you bought, and then a few months after that, there was an expansion if you wanted a shot in the arm and a little more variety, and then another expansion after that, and so on and so forth. Now, on the other hand, all the expansions come out at once, right? Because you smash through enough funding goals, there's the you know champion version with, with extra quote-unquote quests, I'll talk about that in just half a second. But we've basically had the equivalent amount of content in Thunderstone Quest already that we had in Basic Thunderstone over three years or Thunderstone Advance over another three years, all at once. Which is nice insofar as we have a lot of variety right away, don't get me wrong, but there are two things that make me a little bit disappointed. Number one is we didn't have a chance for there to be any kind of meta-tuning 
I don't know if any is necessary. I haven't encountered anything serious. I don't play Thunderstone seriously enough to, to worry about this card being overpowered or, or, or what, because everyone has access to it. But some of the expansions in the previous product lines were in response to perceived problems of the game. And those are the kinds of things that you can't do when everything's released at once. So that's one thing that we've lost. Another thing that's happened is, and this is perhaps a little bit more niche, but we are already at the launch of a product line at an untransportable game. Thunder Thunderstone Quest is incredibly heavy, and it will not fit in any gaming bag you use unless it's the only game you put in there. This is for the champion version, mind. If you just have the, the base version, what have you. And normally, again, there would have been a ramp up to this. If I wanted to bring uh, my old Thunderstone Advance collection to a game day or something, even if I wanted to put it in a shoulder bag, I could have, with the benefit of experience, known what to bring and, and, and parse things out. Thunderstone Quest, you can kind of do that, but it's just, you know, we're already at the behemoth level. We didn't get the nice the nice ramp up, and there are good reasons, both in terms of product management and in terms of game design, to prefer the slow ramp up. Which brings me to just the final observation, and this is kind of a, a positive and a negative. Thunderstone Quest, you have basically three ways you can play it. One of the ways you can play is a quest, because... This is Kickstarter now, and everything has to have a campaign or pretend to have a campaign. Thunderstone Quest pretends to have a campaign. It doesn't. What it has is a whole bunch of recommended layouts. And there's some bad flavor text to connect them all. But they're not quests. They're just recommended layouts. Which is good because Thunderstone needs recommended layouts in a way that lots of other deck builders don't because it relies so much on these combos. You can have an item out there that really, really works if it's equipped to an elven rogue. Well, if you didn't set up with an Elven Rogue, well, then that item is going to kind of be useless. So you might as well have a setup whereby you know that the cards will work well together. There used to be an excellent, excellent, excellent Thunderstone randomizer online that was eventually actually acquired by EEG because it was so good for users of Thunderstone and Thunderstone Advanced to set, give these setups and make sure that the, the, the cards keyed off of each other. Now they just have a list of suggested scenarios, and that's great. Just don't call them quests. I find that a little obnoxious. They're recommended scenarios. That's fine. You can also play it with randomizers. They include randomizers. But then you don't... You might end up with those weird combinations. And then there's Thunderstone Epic, which has been kicking around for about as long as Thunderstone is, exists. Epic Thunderstone is where you don't have stable stacks of items. You basically shuffle one copy of everything that you have, and you just get this random output of, of stuff over the course of the game. And a number of people swear by this. A number of people love themselves some Thunderstone Epic. I think it is the worst of all possible worlds. Because not only do you get the possibility of useless items flooding in, in well, that will never work in combos, you're never in a position to exploit combos because everything's a one-off. You don't have a chance to explore the abilities of this particular combination of class and weapon because you only have one version of that weapon anyway and one version of that class. So it, it, it does nothing for me. The fact that people swear by it is is bizarre. I have to say that I enjoyed when we played it epic-wise, but I think that's only because you had no idea what was going to turn, o turn over next, right? And it gave you a, a huge incentive to go to the village because it was a spot where you could flip over random cards off of the off the weapon deck and you had these new weapons that you had never seen before. So I can see new cards. So I think I was maybe it's just because it was the first time I played it, but once I got to know the cards, then I would agree, probably agree with you that there would be no way you could, you know, build a deck that would combo properly because... You know, you're just getting random stuff all the time. I agree that what you get is the joy of discovery. But what you lose is the ability to use anything 
functionally. And for me, the joy of discovery in Thunderstone, when it exists, is discovering these combos and finding out how these things work and really exerting things to their fullest. Not in just having a fire hose of random crap being sprayed in my face. All right, let me do my final words first. My final words are, even though with all these negatives, if you have played Thunderstone Advance and enjoy it whatsoever, you will enjoy this. Even though it's much of the same, you get everything in one box, all new art, all nicely together. The board is nice. Everything, the components are all good. It's just still the same dated game. I agree. It's the same dated game for both good and ill. I still enjoy it. I can't really recommend it fully. And I am curious about the new co-op mode that is being introduced in the current Kickstarter. I've read the rules. I've looked it over. It looks like it has potential. It looks like it's, you know, cribbing off of Shadow Rift to a certain extent, which, you know, you could do a lot worse. And it really is like a time capsule of, you know, the immediate uh, post-Dominion design work because a lot of those same elements were there right at the beginning. Exploiting combos, managing these four different kinds of currency and all that stuff. It is refined. Don't get me wrong. That that ramp up, that initial ramp up is much faster in Quest. The fact that the decks are graduated, those are the two key improvements over previous versions of Thunderstone Quest. But if you like 10-year-old deck builders and you've enjoyed Thunderstone in the past, then Thunderstone Quest might just be for you. Otherwise, you know, keep playing whatever deck builder you got. What I didn't talk about either, it just came to mind, is these figures that it comes with. Oh, dear Lord. Right? So these figures come out of the box, and I think, oh, this could be interesting. You get to play a certain type of, you know, fighter or cleric or magic user, and you're going to build around that. But these are just uh, fancy meeples and, and mean nothing in the game except to show where you are and, and have no... And even that position doesn't really matter much. No. This is, like I said, this is, this is the consummate Kickstarter campaign. All the expansions at once, miniatures that don't need to be there. Yeah. And how many times have we just like not even move them around, right? It's like, I'm doing this now. Right. And yeah. All right. right. Sorry. All done? So there you go. A game that we both <laughs> kind of enjoy, but are a little hard-pressed to explain why or justify fully. <laughs> or recommend. Right. So let's move on to our topic, which Walker has uh, glossed as the the romance is over, and I I present as mechanisms that you used to like but don't like anymore. This is, you know, my sort of Walker to English dictionary for you. So what do you got, Walker? Let's start off with something I'd already alluded to earlier, and that is just the CCG mechanism, where I, I played Magic a long time ago. I played these games where it's like the take that, you know, I drew this card off the top, this is my big combo, and now the other side's going to do their big combo. I used to be fine with that, and for whatever reason now, it just drives me up the wall. It's like, oh, you got to, you know, draw that card, luckily, at the beginning of the game. And, you know, now it's going to, you know, utilize the rest of the game. Where did this come off? Oh, in Quartermaster, right? With the status cards, if one side just happens to get one status card early in the game, that's going to massively change how the rest of the game is played. So that sort of thing is sort of wearing me thin now. Honestly, Shadespire has gotten me to appreciate it a little bit more. If it is presented in a certain context, I I like the way, with a couple of very minor exceptions, I think the cards in Shadespire lead to a very reasonable universe of possible effects. Uh, there's one card called Quick Thinker that I'd be happier if, the, if it didn't exist. Uh, but past that, I think that there's a way to do it well and there's a way to do it badly. And I do think that you can get to deck construction in a reasonably good way in some contexts. But yeah, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. Yeah, but from. Shadespire is very short. And it's yes. And that, that one-off... Well, so, so is Magic, isn't it? 
I haven't played Magic in a long time. Neither but, have I. Okay. But we should stop talking about things we don't understand. I suppose. So about the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. <laughs> it's, it's, it's got me thinking. No, but in, uh, in, in uh, Quartermaster, it could lead for the whole game, like an hour of this one card, you know, changing the game. Yeah, but look. Uh, no, I'm not saying it's a huge thing. I'm just saying it's one of these mechanics. But it's, it's in, quor- in Quartermaster General, if you do that, you're ca- you're spending valuable tempo that you're not doing something uh, that you're not spending on something else. So I think that's a separate issue entirely. I don't think we want we want to muddy the waters with both constructed games and non-constructed games. True. So in a slightly more Euro vein, a mechanic that I used to enjoy, but now I really really don't like, and that is multiplayer blind bidding where everyone pays. Blind bidding, I think, is okay when it's two players, because that's more or less the only way that you can do bidding other than just a a, a call and response system, and that's not particularly satisfying in two players, generally speaking. So an example of this is Scoville. In Scoville, it's multiplayer blind bidding, and everyone pays. Archipelago, everyone pays. A little bit of Rising Sun sometimes. I mean, Rising Sun, the bidding is... Just when when it's blind bidding and everyone pays, the possibility of catastrophic results based on a slight miscalculation tends to be a little bit too high for my taste. And so I don't have much patience for multiplayer blind bidding anymore. Well, in a game that does blind bidding well, we just played Game of Thrones, and I realized that it is a game, I think, when you're bidding on the different three different spheres of influence. I think it does a great job of... of uh, Blind bidding where everyone pays. There at least, though, correct me if I'm wrong, if you bid the second highest amount, you're in second place. If you bid the third highest amount. This I'm, is true. I'm talking specifically about an instance where everyone pays and only one person wins. And everyone else is equally a loser. That I, I'm, I'm not a fan of. I'm really tired of drafting just as a lazy way of distributing resources. So we've talked before about how we don't really like many drafting games past Fairy Tale because Fairy Tale does it so much better. And one of the things that Fairy Tale does really well in terms of drafting is it facilitates hate drafting, taking something just to deprive it from something else. And all these other drafting games, whether it's Seven Wonders, whether it's even Blood Rage, I love Blood Rage as a game, but the actual drafting itself, I don't think uses drafting very well. I think it's just a, a just a lazy way of distributing the cards. Uh, Ginkopolis is another game I love, but I don't think the drafting in Ginkopolis is especially good. You know, when it's just a function of, okay, of these seven good things, I can only take one and I have to pick one. Sure, that's fine, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's okay. But I think I, I, I'm, I'm just tired of it as a sloppy way of distributing goods around the table. I much prefer it when drafting is a core part of the experience and you have to really think about what you're passing to your neighbor. And I often find that in lots of quote-unquote drafting games, you don't end up doing that. My next one is catch-up mechanics. I used to think that these were very clever and interesting ways to keep people in the game, and they're just starting to wear me thin. Like, uh, you know, someone is doing well. Here's a mechanism that will make everyone else feel better. Any particular ones in mind? None in mind. I thought you said we're not going to bash any particular games in this, so I didn't... I I never said that. I never said (laughs) that. I never said that even once. No. No, I, I didn't put down any examples. There's many Euro games that do it. If you know you're last in a certain thing, then you get first player or you get all sorts of different ways that, you know, are helping people catch up because maybe they feel as though they're not having fun because they're so far behind. Um, in, 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 in their defense, uh, get good. On the topic of Euro things that I used to think were fun and now I'm really tired of, worker placement. I'm not sick and tired of worker placement overall anymore, but again, it's so often just a lazy way of distributing goods around the table. Same thing with auctions. Same thing with drafting. 
There are really, really good drafting and auction games, and there are really good worker placement games, but all too often, it's just a sort of generic, I have these resources that I want to distribute around the table. Here's a way to make them fun, except not really. So, you know, all the Stegmire and Onside of the game, Stone Age, sometimes even Feast for Odin. The worker placement aspect of Feast for Odin is not especially good or compelling. And it's where the player interaction should be, and instead they often just stuff worker placement, but you don't often get satisfying player interaction there. That's, that's what I have as well. It's worker placement is lazy player interaction. You're just racing to get to the points before someone else can, and I'm just tired of it. Can you please just think of a more clever way to do it? Yeah, nine times out of ten, it either exacerbates a player order uh, problem or it just demonstrates how little player interaction there is to begin with. If in Feast for Odin, the player interaction was more substantial and the worker placement was a little bit more cutthroat, then there'd be a turn order problem because getting first player is a little bit weird and it would matter whether you were sitting to the right or to the left of the start player a great deal. But it doesn't. And again, Feast for Odin is a game we both adore. Just the actual worker placement element is just a sort of tired slapdash way of doing it. The element of choosing how many Vikings to place, absolutely that's fine. But that's 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 an ancillary element. That's about that's about managing the resources that you have over the course of the turn managing your own manpower. The worker placement element of it where you're competing with everybody else Almost entirely forgettable. Yep. Next on my list is sort of works on the same thing as engine builders with no interaction. Things like uh, terraforming Mars. Terraforming Mars. Or like terraforming Mars. Look, I'm getting on the terraforming Mars boat. I'm looking up games today, and terraforming Mars is fourth on yeah. the BGG 100. Like, I enjoy terraforming Mars. I am far from saying that it's the best game of all time, but fourth. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's an outrage. Not even. Not even close. Kids these um, days, man. I know. Times are bad. There Children no longer respect their elders and everyone's writing a book. It's it's so true. So yeah, so games where you're just playing your own little engine and no player interaction and you might as well be playing solo. At first I thought they were, uh, I enjoyed them, you know, trying to do different strategies and think about, you know, how I'm going to play next time. But sitting down and just staring at my own board anymore is wearing thin. We've talked about this before. I'm kind of over legacy games. Very often they're just bad campaigns with a social obligation tacked on. But uh, as I say, we've discussed that at length. So used to be really excited. It used to be great. The stickers, man, I was I was sold by the stickers. I was completely fooled and the stickers made me have so much fun. But now I just don't see it anymore. Last thing I'd like to complain about. I used to be really enthusiastic about dungeon crawls. I used to, I used to think they were great and play all of them. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just don't, I just don't see it anymore. I, I want, generally speaking, I want like a stripped down tactical combat experience. I think the first time I really realized this was when I, I first started playing Claustrophobia, where Claustrophobia looked at Dungeon Crawl and said, "I can cut out eighty percent of that. Watch me." And then it, it presented a really compelling gameplay experience without all this other cruft. And this isn't just older games too. I mean, obviously, it applies to things like Descent, both first and second edition, but it also applies to stuff like uh, more recent stuff like Dungeon Alliance. I don't think I have the patience for dungeon crawls anymore. Even some of the elements of Thunderstone Quest, again, it just feels super dated. This sort of bad D&D of going and leveling up characters. There are so many really good, stripped-down, tight, tactical fantasy combat experiences, whether it's the MOBA-type games, whether it's Doom Rock, whether it's Too Many Bones, whether it's uh, Shadow Rift even, that I don't really feel the need to play any of these dungeon crawls anymore. 
and the way City of Kings did it. Totally, you know, turned it upside down and turned it into this totally different experience. Yeah. Like how they did it. Last thing on my list is that just the stuff like the take that action cards that are tacked on to games to, you know, I don't know, to balance them out or for whatever reason. The biggest opponent to this is uh, Twilight Imperium 3 where they just kept this action deck in the game where it's like, hey, I got this card. Boom, take that. I'm done with that. Please stop doing it. It's lazy. Yeah, we really are... The market really does like games with substantive player interaction. Not the trivial kind, not the tacked-on kind, and not just the superficial I-punch-you-in-the-face kind. I mean, don't get me wrong, if it's the I-punch-you-in-the-face kind, if you internalize it to design like a game like Doer and you understand what you're going in, but you know, don't mix a slow, stodgy ed- engine builder with uh, pointless take-that cards. That's not the way to do it. No, I think an evidence of this is these party games that are getting so much traction it is not because you know you can include everybody or because you know they're basic or easy to teach it's because they are very clever and how they make everyone you know keep attention and keep everyone involved and and have an enjoyable experience from beginning to end you know i think people are taking these party games for granted and are not looking at how intricate the designs are in these games well said so that's going to close us out for this week on So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Born Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can, and we do take note of your suggestions, and then pilfer them and claim credit, as true creative types do. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you like the podcast, tell a friend. See you in two weeks. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>